Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting, former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, as well as a former Assistant Secretary of Commerce and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We are a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership on keeping the blue economy at the forefront of American conservation and prosperity. Today's episode is third in a series on technology in the blue economy. And for reference, I wrote about this topic in Real Clear Science in October of last year. And the title of the article was Seven Technologies Revolutionizing Our Relationship with the Ocean. And uh, this is, uh, this, is pay- this takes from one of those pieces I talked about, and that's marine autonomy or drone technology. The other two, we looked at biotechnology in February, and in December, we looked at artificial intelligence. And so I am super excited. We are talking about robots today, Uh, robots in the oceans, and um, nothing could just really be more exciting because so much good work and the experts we have here with us. So before I begin, though, I'd like our listeners to know that our media team at Coastal News Today is looking for sponsors. And if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, please contact Tyler Buckingham at tyler at coastalnewstoday.com or go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Now, quickly, some definitions up front. I'm going to use some acronyms because there's various ways we described marine autonomy, uh, one including uncrewed aerial vehicles or UAVs, uncrewed surface vehicles or USVs, uncrewed underwater vehicles, UUVs, and generally the ones on and under the water are collectively called uncrewed maritime systems or UMS. And then we also might throw in ROV there for remotely operated vehicles. And alternatively, some people use uncrewed and unmanned. We're going to go with uncrewed because that's what we call them at NOAA. And I'm joined now by four experts in this area in uh, the operation of uncrewed systems. And good friends, too, who I just enjoyed working with over the last few years. And first up, we have Alex Ligon. He's a program specialist at the Uncrewed Maritime Systems Division of NOAA's Uncrewed Systems Operations Center. He's in Gulfport, Mississippi. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Right on. And next in line, we have Lieutenant Chelsea Parrish, a newly minted NOAA Twin Otter pilot and formerly a UAV pilot doing cetacean photogrammetry uh, at NOAA's Southwest Fishery Science Center in La Jolla. And, and you're joining us from Florida, aren't you, Chelsea? Well, actually, I'm uh, joining you all from Toronto, Canada, where I'm attending Twin Otter Initial Sims training. So that's where I'm coming from today. And thank you for having me. Right on. You're all over the map. Well, good. Thanks so much for taking time out of your very, very important training, Chelsea. And we also have Jen Walsh, a research biologist and glider UUV pilot at NOAA Southwest Fisheries Science Center in La Jolla, California. Thanks for coming on, Jen. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. This is great. 
Yeah, it is. And rounding it out, we have Grant Rawson, a physical scientist and another glider UUV pilot at NOAA's Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory in Miami. Grant, thanks for coming on board. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here with this great group of people. Well, it is a good group, Grant. You're right about that. And I'm going to first off start with Alex Ligon down in Gulfport, Mississippi. And Alex is part of this Uncrewed Maritime Systems Division, a new organizational construct to help organize NOAA's Uncrewed Systems Operations. And uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what you're up to, Alex, and uh, your new job here, since it is new and I just saw you last week. Sure thing. Um, as Admiral Gallaudet mentioned, the Uncrewed Operations Center has been recently uh, implemented in NOAA, and the idea is to kind of create an umbrella for all the uncrewed systems being used within NOAA, and those also being sourced out by NOAA, uh, for instance, as data as a service. I work with the Uncrewed Marine Systems Division, so I specifically work with those maritime, uh, maritime vehicles, USVs and UUVs. Um, and it's been quite a exciting challenge uh, organizing all of these systems that have been used throughout the years into a kind of a more streamlined uh, program so that everything, all the systems and all the people involved kind of have one location and headquarters to report back to. So the idea is to try to help really keep these systems in use and operational so that the knowledge and the experience doesn't fade away. And part of the Marine Systems Division um, out of Gulfport, um, we are working to support, operate, and transition those marine systems like the ASVs, excuse me, USVs and UUVs into full operation within NOAA projects. Well, that was great, Alex. Good description. And, and, and kind of in other words, I saw all this uncrewed system activity across NOAA put, for, put forward for various applications, which we'll talk in detail about, but none of it was organized and there were really no standards. And sometimes uh, projects wouldn't live on because of that lack of any centralized support. And so that worked, Alex is trying to ensure continuity of these operations and a little bit of standardization of the training and operation. His expert is in hydrography, ocean mapping, and he was previously with NOAA's navigation response teams on the Gulf. And we'll, we'll go into that a little bit. Um, but another application of uncrewed systems operations is doing marine mammal monitoring. And, uh, and Lieutenant Chelsea Parrish is here to tell us a little bit about what she was doing in La Jolla previously. Uh, would you mind just kind of giving us an overview, Chelsea? Yeah, certainly. Um, so like uh, Admiral Gallaudet previously mentioned, I was a, a drone operator for the Southwest Fishery Science Center under the Marine Mammal and Turtle Division. And I essentially just went on several projects where we were either calculating the total population of a certain species that we were um, studying or I wasn't involved in this, but we were also collecting blow samples from white whales to kind of determine their overall health and analyze the my, microbes within their, their blow samples. Um, we also did a Cook Inlet beluga whale survey, which is a species in the spotlight as considered by NOAA. And fortunately, we were able to fly under permit and, you know, try to get a good grasp on the population and overall health and um, new births of beluga whales up in Anchorage, Alaska. So 
just the variety and ability to be able to go out there and collect these samples and collect this data and be able to analyze different populations is pretty rewarding. And that was basically what my job was to help support, you know, Southwest Fishery Science Center in gathering that data as an operational specialist. Well, you're kind of a recruiting poster child in that kind of work. Who does not want to see whales and beluga whales, especially in Alaska? Um, it's just so neat. And I loved following you, Chelsea. And I loved visiting you and seeing you demonstrate the operation of one of those those drones. Uh, it was just so, so neat. I'll, I'll ask more about that. But I should point out, you know, this that work is, is really relevant to the blue economy in, in not a necessarily direct, you know, revenue generating way, but but marine conservation in terms of protecting and preserving ecosystems is it really underpins a healthy, sustainable blue economy. And so your work at fisheries is that, just like hydrography supports uh, shipping in, in the Gulf of Mexico, which Alex did. Um, we're going on just as kind of overviews of, of all the experience we have on this remarkable lineup. I want to go to Jen Walsh who is also at Southwest Fishery Science Center where Chelsea used to work. And, and her work is also really cutting edge and, and expeditionary like Chelsea had done. Uh, Jen, why don't you describe your Antarctic krill surveys with gliders and just an overview of what you, what, you do, what you do and why? So I work for the Antarctic Ecosystem Research Division uh, at the Southwest Fishery Science Center, and we manage the Antarctic Marine Living Resources or AMLARC program. And uh, this program started quite a while ago, but from 1998 through about 2016, uh, we would go to sea out in the Southern Ocean off the Northern Antarctic Peninsula from anywhere between 30 to 90 days each year. And our main goal was to estimate the biomass of Antarctic krill, but also to study the broader marine habitat around the peninsula. And, and the data that we collected is used by the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, or CAMLAR, to help us manage the growing krill fishery down there. Um, but chartering a research vessel in Antarctica is expensive, as you can imagine. It can be in excess of $60,000 a day to charter a ship down mm, there. Yeah. Um, and in addition to that, we had to pay a staff of like 20 scientists and technicians. We had to pay for travel down to Punta Arenas, Chile. And so after 2016, it became just kind of financially unfeasible for us to do surveys anymore. And so we started looking for cost-effective alternatives that would allow us to collect uh, as much of the same data as possible that we used to collect from a ship. And most importantly, that would continue to let us get that estimate of curl biomass every year. Uh, and so we turned to gliders to help us do that. So we pilot underwater gliders in Antarctica, um, anywhere between two and four of them or between anywhere from, I would say, one to three months every year during the austral summer, which is November through February down in the Southern Hemisphere. Wow, I, I, I love what you do. It's so interesting and out there. Uh, and we'll talk more about your adventures there, Jen, but thanks for that overview. And, and then let me now get to Grant Rawson in Miami at, at NOAA's uh, Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory. He is a glider UV pilot, but the, your application is a little bit different than Jen. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do, Grant? Yeah, that's right, Tim. I'm part of a group here in Miami at, at the Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory. And the focus of our group is to try to improve the hurricane intensity forecast using underwater gliders. And the reason we're looking at the intensity forecast is that if you look at the last 30 years of forecasting, the track forecast has gotten better every year. That 
cone that you always see in the news gets a little smaller every year as they really fine tune that forecast. But the intensity forecast is not seeing the same level of improvement over that time. And the reason for that is that most of the intensity comes from heat fluxes in the ocean. And it wasn't really feasible to go out there and try to collect data in a hurricane. You don't want to be out there on a boat trying to get water samples when there's a hurricane coming over, right? No, you so don't. Before, <laughs> so before gliders came around, there's really no way to do that. So once the gliders were available, we thought, hey, we can now use this to try to improve the hurricane intensity forecast. And so that's what we're trying to do at AOML. Well, it's such important work, Grant, and I can't think of a bigger impact on, on the economy and the safety of uh, folks and citizens on the coast than those predictions. And I, I've written about this in several articles, one in the Washington Post, where I describe my experience with Katrina and evacuating before the storm, thankfully to the improvements in National Hurricane Center forecast, thanks to you and your research colleagues, uh, saved my family's life. And and we need that. So thank you so much for that. There, there's a lot of nuts and bolts about the operation of these uncrewed systems that uh, uh, and these robots that uh, I'd like to get into now because it's just interesting. And uh, again, there it's, it's, it's a great example of taking cutting edge technology and applying it to collect important information and data uh, to advance our economy and public safety. So let me go back to Alex. And Alex has a really diversified experience based on his previous navigation response team work uh, coming in after hurricanes, for example. Alex, can you describe a little bit about the NRT's work and your 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 few examples of using uncrewed systems uh, while you were there? Absolutely. So the navigation response branch has six navigation response teams located regionally throughout the U.S., uh, I was with the navigation response team, Stennis, uh, UXS team. So we focused on operationalizing and integrating UXS into response projects, as well as standard navigable surveys. Um, the UXS that we were using were small because the NRT mission is essentially shallow water hydrography. We wanted to fill the charts from the shoreline to the edge of the blue tent where larger vessels were not able to operate. Um, navigationally, for larger shipping, that's not incredibly significant. But for a recreational mariner or anybody else out there, you know, every inch of the chart is important. And that's NOAA's duty is to ensure that those charts are as up to date as possible. So we focused on shallow water hydrography in that blue tent area, and we started using small USVs. As they were very portable, we could deploy them from our small boats, which were 31-foot HSLs, hydrographic survey launches, and we could put them in areas visible by line of sight by our radio telemetry systems on board and operate both the HSL and the ASV in tandem or kind of leapfrog each other um, as needed or as the project uh, required at the time. We also used some small UUVs like the Remus 100 for emergency response projects. Uh, the Remus 100 that we had in our possession and used uh, was equipped with a side scan sonar. So its major purpose was to be deployed in depths appropriate after a hurricane, after recon had been conducted and ensure that 
with as much confidence as possible that UUV isn't going to be ensnared. But we could use that to run channel lines and look for objects. It was object detection, but on the resource of imagery. Uh, and then you could go back with a manned accrued vessel and conduct hydrographic bathymetry over top of that area with a high level of confidence that you're not going to essentially run into something. Um, some of the projects that we got to use these uncrewed systems on were one major project in Annapolis uh, in the Chesapeake Bay, where we went in and we junctioned data, hydrographic data, to a past project that the NOAA ship Thomas Jefferson had conducted. And we specifically filled in areas from the shore to the edge of their bathymetry where they were not able to collect data. And we were able to identify a lot of areas that were of significance to the community in that area, in Whitehall Bay and in Chesapeake Bay and in the Annapolis area. Uh, we were able to identify shifting contours in the channel that the atons were not quite representing appropriately. You know, there's local knowledge that people were able to fall back on and luckily they were safely navigating. But by using our small and crude systems and a variety of areas, we were able to really cover the map and completely fill the gaps that larger vessels on the Thomas Jefferson and her HSLs were not able to complete. So that was a big success in highlighting the navigation response branch's use of small uncrewed systems. That's a great description, Alex. I actually, and for our audience, ATONS is aids to navigation, and and uh, I I think I drove that ASV recently on like at one point in 2018. I think I got on the, the NOAA boat RV Hydro Bay Hydro Two. Were you there with me? Yes, sir. We had a <laughs> so we had a small technical snafu as as is usual with these systems, but we were able to uh, recover quickly and, and keep going and provide a good demonstration, I hope. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. That was great. Yeah. I've, I've met you several times over the years and it's great that we're still working together and we'll talk about that too. But let me go on to Lieutenant Chelsea Parrish. And Chelsea, I want to highlight your work and have you describe a deployment where you used these uncrewed systems, uh, anyone that you want, and just n n make a note of that you're a, a NOAA Corps officer and, uh, and, and the diversity of your work and the importance of your work is really not, is, is underappreciated across America. You're a uniformed officer like the Coast Guard, like the Navy, and, uh, and you go out, you're primarily those applied science missions supporting the NOAA civil scientists, and you've been on the ship or NOAA ship Oregon 2. You're now a Twin Otter pilot. You were previously a drone pilot. I just can't think of more cool work. And you also have a, a MBA from Howard University. Um, so if you don't mind, Chelsea, describe a little bit about a, a, one of your more memorable deployments to go do one of these surveys. Yeah, of course. Um, I think one of the most memorable times is when we were in Anchorage, Alaska, surveying, like I said, Cook Inlet, beluga whales in Cook Inlet. Um, and just having to deal with the environmental factors that come with that, with come with flying an uncrewed aerial system, uh, knowing the personal limitations of yourself and the drone and how the weather affects you. And then also knowing that uh, Cook Inlet has some pretty um, intense tide systems that you have to deal with, um, like the Alaskan boar tide that, you know, you just have to be constantly aware and situationally aware of what's around you. But also, you know, maintaining a safe altitude above beluga whales, a safe distance from beluga whales, 
and just making sure that you're taking care of all the different environmental, personal, and different factors that you have to deal with. Um, but it's also the most rewarding because you're up close and personal with these animals and you have a permit to do so and you're conducting research to try to study the you know, population and the health and calf production that of these endangered um, whales that are also, like I said, our NOAA species in spotlight. And just coordinating with some pretty great scientists along the way who, you know, are able to provide that insight, that background knowledge that you might not know about and just experiencing what we call the canaries of the sea in real life, you know, as they're making their noises and trying to, um, you know, duck out out and dive away from us. Um, But yeah, I mean, that that's probably one of my greatest experiences while operating drones. Well, there's. Another adventure that awaits us here in our discussion, and that's with Jen and her Antarctic krill surveys. So, Jen, thanks for giving us the overview. I'm pretty interested in the details. Where, where do you where do you pilot these from? Do you have to go down and deploy to South America, or are you doing it from La Jolla? We pilot entirely from uh, wherever we live, really. So there are three of us who pilot gliders. Two of us are in La Jolla. One of us is actually on the East Coast. So you can pilot a glider from wherever you have a stable internet connection um, through a, a piloting website. So it ends up being pretty convenient. Who gets the gliders down there? Who, who puts them in the water? So we charter a research vessel to go ahead and deploy them for us. And we'll send a person out there from our team to go just to make sure there are no last minute issues that need to be dealt with um, on the glider itself. Um, but we usually deploy from a National Science Foundation vessel, usually the Lawrence M. Gould. And uh, my coworker and I will, so I guess I should back up a little bit. Uh, when we send gliders down to Antarctica, they actually go in a shipping container from uh, the west coast of California here up, up near Los Angeles down to Punta Arenas, Chile, which is the farthest southern city in Chile. And it can take anywhere between two or four months in a shipping container. Um, so we do a series of checks on our gliders here in La Jolla before we package them up and ship them down there. But my coworker and I will fly down to Chile to meet them there and check them out just to make sure they survive the journey okay, make sure they can connect the satellites so that we can talk to them throughout the deployment. And then we'll load them onto the ship, and then my coworker and I will fly home so that we're ready to be the pilots on duty uh, when the glider is actually deployed. How neat is that? And you have to also uh, uh, configure the glider for the density of the water that it will be in, which is in Antarctica is different than off Southern California. Isn't that correct? It's very different, yes. So we have to make sure the density of the glider matches the density of the water in which it will be deployed. Um, if you make your glider too heavy, it's going to dive great, but it may not surface great. And on the other side, if you make it too light, it's going to have a lot of trouble diving. Um, so when we deploy gliders out here in San Diego just to test them out, uh, we tend to have to make them a little bit lighter because the water here is a little warmer, not as dense. Uh, in Antarctica, the water is very cold and very dense. And so we have to add a lot of weight to that glider to make sure that it can dive and surface uh, the way it's supposed to. Really neat. Wow. And can you also t- tell us about the krill fishery and ha- what the economic significance of that is? Uh, yeah. So the krill fishery has been growing a lot in the last several years and uh, decades, really. And most of the krill that's caught in Antarctica is still primarily used for aquaculture purposes. 
Uh, but there is a growing uh, nutraceutical industry for uh, like dietary supplements made out of Antarctic krill because krill are super high in omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, and these have been demonstrated for, you know, I don't know um, how rigorously this has been demonstrated, but omega-3 fatty acids are, are supposed to be good for cardiac health and for other health issues. And so people are, are really interested in these supplements. And Antarctic krill are very, very high in these fatty acids. And the thing about um, humans is that we can't synthesize those fatty acids on our own. We have to obtain them from our diet or from some sort of supplement. Um, so the nutraceutical industry is, is growing substantially, um, and krill are, are a big part of that. That's so interesting. Wow, that really dovetails into the uh, my last episode on biotechnology. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about how uh, these discoveries we're making apply to the pharmaceutical industry. Um, great. Thank you for sharing. And so let's go to our other glider pilot, uh, Grant Rawson, who's in Miami. And his mission has been to improve the intensity prediction of, of hurricanes. Very important work. And and Grant, I, I wanted to highlight for our, our listeners that uh, I've, I featured you and your work in an article uh, in the Journal of Ocean Technology, and I believe the uh, issue was it was volume 15, number four, it published in 2020, and the title was Autonomy, Artificial Intelligence, and Telepresence, colon, Advancing Ocean Science at Sea in the COVID Era. And you, there's a picture of you, and if you don't know this, I'll share it with you, but there's a photo of you deploying a glider in that. And we highlighted that, that that even though in 2020, when NOAA ships couldn't get underway, you were out there pushing the envelope, deploying gliders to help improve our hurricane predictions and, and dealing with these, these restrictions due to COVID protocols. And the picture even has you wearing a mask. But um, I wanted to see if you could maybe tell our listeners a little bit about the glider picket line concept. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, that cruise we did in July 2020, that was one of the first research cruises probably in the world after COVID locked everybody down. We were able to get the approvals and get travel, go down to Puerto Rico, get on the ship and, and do the deployments in person. So that was a really, a really exciting time. Yeah. That was a really awesome review. Everybody at NOAA was following this because it was like, you were the first people to go out. And, um, but yeah, but tell us about this picket line idea. I think it's fascinating. Sure. The, the picket fence concept is to have underwater gliders and other ocean observation assets deployed in areas where hurricanes often travel and intensify. And for those that don't know, an underwater glider, it doesn't have a motor or a propeller in the traditional sense, like a, like a submarine or a boat. It actually has a bladder uh, filled with air or oil, and it uses that bladder to change its density. And based on the change in density, it can sink or rise in the ocean, and then it can use its wings to convert that uh, vertical motion into horizontal motion. And because of that, they're super efficient. They can last, you know, six to 10 months at a time, and they can be out for the entire hurricane season. But they're also, because of that, not super fast, right? They go about half a knot. Uh, with the right ocean conditions, we can sometimes see four knots. So because of that, we need to be in these areas before the storms get there. So we're part of a larger team uh, from the U.S. Integrated Ocean Observing System, or IUS, and we cover the Caribbean. <coughs> Sorry. 
So we cover the Caribbean Sea area with our partnerships at the University of Miami and one of the IUS Regional Associations, CARICUS. We also work with the National Authority of Marine Affairs in the Dominican Republic, also known as ANIMAR. And we work with the Cape Eleuthera Institute in the Bahamas. And we work with the U.S. Navy, who acts as a force multiplier in the area. Since they have you know, hundreds of gliders, they lend some of their gliders to our groups to deploy and act as a force multiplier in these areas. So our section of the picket fence is there in the Caribbean. There's also sections in the Gulf of Mexico and all along the east coast of the U.S. so that we have assets in the area when a hurricane comes through. We can really get that data into the models and improve the forecasts and get people ready. That's such a great concept. I just love this idea of collaborating with all these players to, to lay out a barrier basically across the Gulf, the Caribbean, and, and I know that Rutgers is doing it up in the, the Mid-Atlantic region, all for when these storms, wherever, wherever these storms form and go, you are ready to start observing that important um, ocean thermal structure to, to inform a better intensity forecast. It's, it's such an awesome idea. I, I love it. And it was great to write about you in that article, Grant. Um, and, and thank you. And so and kind of along these lines of just innovating with concepts and new platforms, I want to go back to Alex because I was just with him uh, and we were meeting to discuss those acquisition of some new platforms. Uh, and I profiled this, this one particular platform and company on a previous episode. I had this little sub-series of women wave makers and the company was Xblue. Now they're called Xsail. And the interesting thing about that is they had this really amazing mapping uncrewed service vessel called the Drix. So can you talk about your plans uh, or what you've done already with that platform, Alex, at least your larger office and anything you're looking to do in the future? Absolutely. So a couple of years ago, I believe it was 2019, Noah became interested in the Drix. And in 2021, they were able to purchase a Drix, uh, USV equipped with an EM2040, multi-beam sonar for bathymetric surveys and hydrography, as well as it is equipped with an EK-80 uh, fisheries sonar for acoustic surveys, uh, water column uh, fishery surveys. Um, in 2021, Drix was received by UNH and evaluated and transferred to the Thomas Jefferson and the Great Lakes and the Thomas Jefferson and UNH and XL slash XBlue at that time, integrated the USV onto the ship and operated it for an entire month on a hydrographic survey. And it, at the end of that survey, it was deemed a success. You know, there were lots of trial and error uh, evolutions, but at the end of it, they came out with a great operational debrief document cataloging those pros and cons and ways to move forward. And since then, Drix is being integrated onto a fisheries vessel as for its other option for survey. It is currently in Kodiak on standby for a project in July to conduct a Pollock survey in tandem with the NOAA ship Oscar Dyson. Um, in both scenarios, it is acting as a true force multiplier. 
both ships are collecting data um, at the same time as Drix is. In Alaska, the goal is to have the Drix and the Oscar Dyson kind of leapfrog each other or hopscotch as the Drix is identifying schools of pollock uh, fish in the water column. They're able to relay that information in real time back to the ship as the ship is conducting ground truthing uh, trawling surveys to actually pull up those fish uh, and identify them as Pollock or not. And this is going to rapidly enhance and hopefully create a more confident assessment of the fish stock in that area as Pollock, I believe, and I want to be wrong here because fisheries is not my background, but I believe Pollock is the largest fisheries uh, in the U.S. It's one of the most important. It is. Yes, sir. Um, right. So that, that project is yet to happen or yet to occur, but we are highly confident and the, the crews and the teams and the engineers that have integrated the ship on board, um, the scientists who have tested the sensors and conducted the training uh, iterations, uh, everyone's highly confident that this is going to be a success. So as Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. I can stop there for a question if you'd like. No, no. It's just such a really cool blue economy story because we first did a drone, a USV Pollock survey in 2020. And I profiled that in the same journal article that I wrote about uh, with Grant's gliders. And that was that Pollock survey we did during using sail drones. And it wasn't really optimal, but they were able to have enough data to set catch limits. And if they had not had the data, the North Pacific Fisheries Council would have set, uh, been more conservative at the catch limits. And, and so the, the data, that drone data gave enough confidence to allow fishermen to make 100 million more dollars than they would have otherwise. So it was, it was a big blue economy success story. And now with a better drone, this Drix, we're gonna perform that survey. And it also highlights a very interesting thing. And that is, uh, a lot of these drone operations, they're, they're really basically, they're, they call it man-unmanned teaming. You really can't take people out of the loop, but when you can combine them, it force multiplies in a vessel or a platform. And so I want to go to Chelsea now. And well, I thought in this idea of discussing crude and uncrewed systems teaming, um, I, I, you're unique. You're a twin otter pilot now, very newly qualified, but you also have been a, a drone pilot. Um, how would you compare the two piloting positions? I, I'd love to hear your perspective. Few people have that. Well, I'm actually still in the process of earning my co-pilot qualification, but I think you know, learning from the crew resource management of flying with my instructor um, for the past year, it's just I think it's along the same thing, and you just have to establish responsibilities and roles. And you know, everybody's following a checklist, and you know, you're learning that camaraderie with each other. And I feel like it falls along the same lines because, you know, you are a two-person qualified crew, but you are one crew. And so you have to learn how to operate in that sense. Right. Well, and, and as a NOAA Corps officer, I want to take this moment to have you give a plug because I just absolutely uh, admire and appreciate the, the diversity of positions in the NOAA Corps. You're a pilot. You're a drone pilot. You have been an officer of the deck, correct? Yep, that's correct. On uh, NOAA Ship Oregon 2 out of Pascagoula, Mississippi. So you're a ship driver. And, you know, later on, you, what else do you have to look forward in your career if you stay in? 
So I would say my 10-year goal is to hopefully be aboard uh, one of the Hurricane Hunters, whether that be the G4 or the P3s or their replacements that are coming down. Wow, that's great. So you're going you're gonna to stay in the pilot uh, career path like uh, previous NOAA Corps Admiral Mike Sila, like current NOAA Corps Admiral Nancy Hahn. Uh, I'm looking forward to when you make flag rank. I appreciate it. We'll see, you know, you never know what life gives you, but that's my goal and my intention is to retire like my father did in the Navy and just like you did, you know, make a career out of it because it's so beneficial and rewarding. Yeah, what a good attitude. I, I love this. Well, I, you, you have my vote. I'll just tell you that right now. And, uh, and thank you for your service. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your service and what you're continuing to do following that. Oh, I'm, I'm just having fun, but uh, that's, I hope we all are. And that's probably the secret to a good career. Uh, and now I'd like to move on to, to Jen Walsh at Southwest Fishery Science Center. And you gave a great description about your Antarctic krill surveys. And you're interesting to me. I, I, you caught my attention uh, because of the fact that you weren't originally a drone person or, or even a technology person, really. Uh, you're an ecologist. Is that correct? Yeah, ecology, uh, biochemistry. So originally my role here was to go out on our oceanographic surveys and collect krill and other zooplankton from our net toes. And then I would do biochemical analyses on those mostly um, lipid fatty acid stable isotope analyses to look at food web structure of the zooplankton community around the uh, northern Antarctic Peninsula. And then when we couldn't afford surveys anymore, we made this rapid shift over to using gliders. Uh, and that was a very steep learning curve for me. I am definitely, as you said, not technologically savvy. If I can't fix something by turning it off and turning it back on again, I need to call tech support. <laughs> like many of us. <laughs> this was this was and continues to be um, a Every day I learn something new and I, I think I probably mess more things up than I get right, but I learn from them and, you know, I haven't lost a glider yet. So that's a good sign. Hey, yes. You, well, so this is what I loved about you is that that kind of adaptability and your sense of humor. Can you tell us, uh, tell our listeners what your, your Twitter handle is and why, how you came up with it? Uh, my Twitter handle is at reluctant underscore pilot. Um, because I was afraid to use gliders. I was afraid to use anything that technologically advanced. I was afraid to be in charge of something that was nearly half a million dollars when you consider the glider itself and all the sensors that we have on it. Um, and so I started that Twitter handle specifically to try to engage people in science communication and teach them about gliders, but also um, to kind of um, talk about the day-to-day -day triumphs and struggles of working with these gliders, um, babysitting them while they're deployed, um, as a way not only to kind of make people realize how important they are uh, and what we hope to achieve with them, but also it was a fun way to kind of deal with the anxiety of transitioning from something I'm really comfortable with, which is all of that lab work and those biochemical analyses, to something I'm definitely not comfortable with, which is uh, you know, this advanced technology that we're using. Well, I applaud you because, first of all, I enjoyed reading your, your tweets. It was just so amusing, and I encourage everybody to check that out at reluctant underscore pilot, and you can see her journey, and it's it's been really interesting. But what a important role in science communication you performed. I think uh, 
I would like to think that, that you've opened the door for many to become more comfortable with these kind of changes, which, as we described with Alex and uh, there and Grant, these are accelerating, really. Uh, and, it's, and it's quite remarkable uh, and, and I think exciting and the same. Um, and now, now, thank you, Jen. Going to Grant now, I'm interested in your thoughts about going forward. Are, 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 is there any new sensing technology or new variants of the gliders? Well, you're a research lab, so you're you're constantly pushing the envelope. Just curious what you're what you're doing. You're looking forward to in the next year or two. Yeah, I mean, we'd love to look into more sensor integration. Um, you know, the the glider is very adaptable. You can include any number of uh, serial and voltage sensors. Um, currently, we use just temperature salinity and dissolved oxygen, but we'd love to be able to add uh, PCO2 or pH in the future. And the, the sensors exist. There's just issues with response time and uh, and data processing. So being able to further integrate those would be great uh, to look at kind of the global carbon cycle and really expand the use of the the glider. Since we're already out there, we've done over 50 missions to date. We've spent over 5,200 days at wow. sea. We've completed 34,000 dives. And <clears throat> we do it in areas where we repeat these transects. So since 2014, we've done the transects in the same area. So there's a wealth of data there that's not just for the immediate use of hurricane intensification, but it can also be used for later studies looking at water masses and the global carbon cycle. So to be able to integrate even more of those sensors into the glider would be something we really would look forward to. That's that's fascinating. That's great. Well, keep it going and keep keep the press. And uh, the last set of questions I wanted to uh, go through here is uh, about each of you as individuals. Uh, and, and I want to go back to Alex Ligon in Gulfport, Mississippi at NOAA's Uncrewed Systems Operations Center. Uh, you know, Alex, in studying about you uh, as preparing for this podcast, uh, I was surprised because, and I don't take this in the wrong way, but you currently have an associate's degree and you're working on your bachelor's. So here you are, not even finishing undergraduate degree, and you are just, you are leaning forward and, and at the cut, at the, at the tip of the spear, as we'd say in the Navy, on this advanced technology work. And I, I'm so impressed by that. And so um, you're, can you just talk a little bit about what you're, what you're studying now at the University of Southern Mississippi and and what maybe your technology and, and science goals are as you as you move forward? Sure, sure. Um, and no offense at all. You know, uh, part of it's kind of like a badge of honor. Sometimes there's a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, but, you know, I try to take it all in stride <laughs> because I've been so lucky to work with so many different folks who have just been advocates for me and, you know, the teams that I work with that have kind of, you know, pushed me along and kind of guided me and nudged me into the path that I'm in now. Um, and just a background on that, you know, that all started in a marine technology course at KFIR Community College with just a great group of professors and a great classmates and an opportunity to dive into the technological side on these marine systems from fisheries technologies to habitat mapping to hydrographic mapping to oceanography, water analysis, all those things. It just, it, it kickstarted this already large love for the ocean and the environment that I had. And as I went through NOAA, starting as an assistant survey tech on the Thomas Jefferson, kind of being ushered along by uh, 
Captain Crocker and now retired uh, Shep Smith, who put me in the first UMS uh, Tier 1 uh, Uncrewed Systems Maritime uh, Certificate Program to um, Captain Van Westendorp and, and all these guys who just kind of helped nudge me along the way and gave me the access to to the resources uh, needed to develop my career. Um, and then that led me to uh, USM when I was essentially kind of nudged in the path of the NRTs as, as I applied for a job with the NR, NRTs. Um, they highlighted me and said, well, we want to stand up an uncrewed systems team in the Gulf of Mexico, which honestly I had not even thought about Mississippi at the time. But they said, hey, we're going to do all these great things and we, we have these tools. We just need a team to focus on them. I said, that sounds great. So that led me to USM and the support of um, uh, of my team then, and I began as best as I could between juggling, you know, school and and work. Um, I, I will say it's taken a little bit of a hiatus between COVID and life. <laughs> um, I had a, I have a little boy Frankie who was born uh, in 2020, so everything was remote, and then I have this you know this baby. And learning how to do all of that has been quite a, uh, a task to juggle. And um, I'm getting my, my stuff, myself back together to dive back in to uh, USM in a marine science uh, degree, um, possibly focused on hydrography. But now as my career is kind of taking another step forward, absolutely, I want to look into other options that might, that will benefit me and the organization because I do have a great, I get just a great loyalty and love for what Noah's mission is. Um, so I'm trying well, to get, that's just, well, sorry. That's yeah, really well my, said. Thank, thank you very much. Get my ducks back in a row and with the support from my, my wife and, you know, Frankie, who just thinks I'm awesome, which I'm like, buddy, I, I, I appreciate that. You got no idea, dude. <laughs> um, <laughs> as well as, you know, my new, my, my new, uh, my new office between um, our chief Dexter Malley and our director, uh, Captain William Moet, they're all great advocates and supportive of furthering education and professional development in a nutshell. Well, right on. I really applaud the way you uh, recognize all these individuals who helped influence you. I really think that's what it's about. And we could talk about all the technology and toys, but it's always about people at the end. And let's go to Lieutenant Chelsea Parrish. I, I, uh, I maybe lost track of the fact that your dad was in the Navy, but tell us about that. And is it influenced on your career? You know, I really think it has. I think, you know, as being a science oriented person growing up and always interested in, you know, animals and the ocean. And I wanted to be a vet once upon a time. Uh, but, you know, I just pursued my bachelor's degree from Savannah State University. And then I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I was like, well, more school. Here we go. So then I ended up getting my master's in marine science. And that's where I found out about the NOAA Corps. You know, it was because I went to uh, the NOAA Educational Partnership Program um, with my minority serving institutions. They were holding a conference at Maryland Eastern Shore and there was a NOAA Corps recruiter there. I was a brand new graduate student. And, you know, I just went over to the recruiter and started talking to her about, you know, what is the NOAA Corps? You know, it has the word NOAA in it and, you know, got a little bit more information about it. And I was, you know, sold on the fact that it was science and service. 
And I couldn't, you know, ask for a better fit. And I knew at that moment, you know, my first semester of graduate school that I was like, the no core is it. So for the next two and a half years, you know, I worked on my application, continued to communicate with the recruiters. And I got in on my first, you know, um, application and it's the rest has been history. Um, it's almost seven years now since I was commissioned and it's just been very rewarding and, you know, talking to my dad and my mom and they're always just uh, living vicariously through me. And my dad even mentioned, you know, if he knew about the NOAA Corps back in 19, I think 81 when he joined the Navy that he would have probably joined the NOAA Corps. So you know, it's definitely been an influence. I've been around the water my whole life because my dad was in the Navy. And so, you know, the NOAA Corps is the, the best thing for me. Wow. That, that, this is interesting. I got to meet your dad because I, I have said that. You <laughs> might have heard me say that many times when I worked with your agency, if I had known about the NOAA Corps, because it fits everything. I My love for the ocean and that that service and uniform service and that ethic of service, which I so admire. And so good on you. And that, I love, love that. Thanks. Thank you for that pitch. Everybody listening who has that interest, um, reach out to us and we will be glad to help share with you uh, about the, the NOAA Corps. Um, now, Jen, interestingly, I had a discussion with you about your dad too and his influence on you. And I didn't think we'd go this way, but it's a nice way to emphasize the people component of this technology. It, it, can you, do you mind sharing a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Uh, just like Chelsea, my dad had a huge influence on me. Um, he's a lawyer, not anything to do with the ocean, uh, but I've always thought of him as a scientist trapped in a lawyer's body. He's always been so interested in science. I think he attends more talks and reads more science articles than I do. Um, but I grew up in Southern California, and he would take me to the beach every weekend during the summertime, which I loved. I love the ocean. I love being in the ocean. I loved going tide pooling around the ocean. And I, I think from a young age, always said I was going to be an oceanographer, even though I had absolutely no idea what that meant when I was six or seven years old. Um, but my dad always really encouraged me to do whatever I wanted to. And uh, I always said I was going to go to UC Santa Cruz and study marine biology. And I did that. And I, I wouldn't have had the, the courage or the ability to do that without my dad's uh, encouragement and support. So he was instrumental in me getting to do what I do now. It's so nice to hear. And I think our listeners know I'm a father of three daughters and I, I'm trying to be, be like the, the great people you mentioned and, and Chelsea too. Uh, well, neat. And, uh, you know, interestingly, I never thought I would go and take this turn, but it's, it's great that it does. And it's the fun thing about hosting a podcast. I want to go to Grant because I noted in my notes about your parents being marine geologists and that having an influence on you and your love for the ocean. Uh, talk to us about what they did and kind of how that influence resulted in you now being doing what you do. Yeah, it seems to be a kind of general theme here in this group. But yeah, both my parents were marine geologists. They worked at uh, the Lamont Darty Earth Observatory up at Columbia University. And because of that, we always grew up, you know, in and around the ocean. I started scuba diving when I was 14. And I went on my first research cruise on the RV Morris Ewing when I was 18. Soon I was legally allowed to go on the boat. I went on the boat as an air gunner working on the seismic ship. <laughs> That's and great. My first cruise was <laughs> five weeks long. I spent at sea the first time I ever went to sea. And it was a great experience, and I just wanted to keep doing it. So I went to the University of Miami for undergrad and got a degree in marine science. And three days later, I started working at NOAA AML right across the street. 
you know, I started uh, scuba diving, doing field work, working all the different projects at AOML. And then eventually we got into these gliders. And I always say it's like you're using a rotary phone your whole life and then someone hands you an iPhone. You know, like the jump in technological improvement was so big over what we were doing. It was really exciting to be involved with that. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to see what comes next and how we can use that to really further NOAA's mission. No, that's just great. That's great, Grant. You know, you're, I had uh, several episodes which touch on what you just mentioned. Uh, I had two where I interviewed Robert Ballard, the discoverer of Titanic, and a, a uh, excellent marine geologist, just like your folks. So if anyone's interested, check that one out. Uh, but good to hear about your your experience, which I never knew of, going to, going to sea early at 18, learning to scuba dive. I've had a lot of scuba diving discussions on my podcast, so you can look through those. Um, and this has just all been terrific. I mean, thank you so much for, to our guests for providing all this great technical insight and blue economy relevant topics, but also uh, the people component is always the best part of the show. And so uh, Alex Lagone at uh, Gulfport, Mississippi, NOAA's Uncrewed System Operations Center, thank you. Lieutenant Chelsea Parrish, a newly minted twin autopilot for NOAA, still completing training. Jen Walsh, who was is with the Southwest Fisheries Science Center at NOAA in La Jolla, California. And Grant Rawson, Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory uh, of NOAA in Miami. You have been fantastic. Thank you so much. In this latest episode of the American Blue Economy podcast, we look at drone technology and how it contributes to the American Blue Economy. Please join us for our April episode where we partner with the wonderful Helen Burrell, for a joint episode with her North Coast Chronicles podcast, and we're going to explore the National Marine Sanctuaries of the Great Lakes. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time.